Bruno Latour died today. Did he really? I guess he's still alive though, right? He's still an agent, right? As a corpse. Now he's a thing, but he's a thing. Things yeah, he's people. a thing, but he's thing. He's still a subject. Yes. It's tragic. <laughs> we would never make light of a human death. <laughs> Except that he's not really dead. He's still alive. No, it's okay. We can make we fun of him yeah. <laughs> because... We're being true to his philosophy. Yes. Which lives on in death. No, he literally lives... The, the thing about it is him, <laughs> he literally lives on yeah. in death. Yeah. Not just his philosophy. <laughs> uh, Mark Cousins used to tell a, a story about Woody Allen that he said like, he wants to live, like, I want to live forever. And then someone told him, well, you know, you, you have your works, your films, etc. So you, your legacy, you, you will, you will live forever in some way. Forever, yeah. No, I, I, I want to live forever by not dying. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Bruno Latour cracked that. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome back to Street Sweeper. I'm Ricardo. My name is Will. And uh, yeah, we are, so this is part two of our um, welfare state dedicated question-based... Uh, Extravaganza. <laughs> <laughs> our one patron question episode. Yeah. And um, yeah, like the part one, we were, we're basically having this systematic approach. There's, we tend to run into essentially two takes on what the welfare state is, right? Yeah, put in there sort of simple, simplest and most one-sided terms. Right. The welfare state is either like uh, a successful victory, a partial victory uh, of working class struggle mm -hmm. for material gains in mm -hmm. capitalist society. Mm -hmm. um, so under this reading, like welfare state institutions, the uh, healthcare, you know, public education, blah, blah, blah. public housing, blah, 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 uh, are all good if incomplete. Basically. Right. Yeah, there's, there's stuff that... We can force capitalism to give to us, yeah. But in so doing, in, if they give it to us, they neutralize our drive for a revolutionary takeover of of, of the system. Yeah, there's some cost to that, and yeah. you're not doing communism in the end. Yes. Yeah. And then the other take, uh, which is is much more critical of the welfare state, is that uh, it was basically just a, a capitalist plan all along, right? To integrate the workers into capitalism, right? So that that uh, kind of weakening of working class militancy that the reforms created uh, was like basically what capital had been aiming at. And actually, e even deeper, capitalism was trying to turn workers into basically little capitalists, into bourgeois subjects. Right, right, right. Um, and they reference, instead of talking about the welfare state uh, or even social democracy, they talk about some of the more kind of theoretical or like... I mean, this this is a heavily heavily theoretical discourse, not really a political discourse. Right. So they talk about Fordism. Right. Uh, they talk about governmentality. Right. Um, it's kind of Foucauldian right. discourse, right? Right. So we we discussed the first one of these last week, and we tried to offer a corrective, basically. Yeah. Along the lines that this this captures a big part of what's going on, but it doesn't mean that uh, you know reforms 
it doesn't mean that reformism is the inevitable result of organization for reforms, basically. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the, uh, the working class fights for material gains. Well, yeah, last week we used that, that tweet uh, as kind of our foil to talk mm. about this. And Pure happenstance, by the way. We didn't yeah. look for it. We just <laughs> literally landed in our feed when we were starting to record. <laughs> yeah, this stuff's just out there, right? Yeah. Um, so the the negative side of of the reading that we talked about last week is that okay, we we asked for material concrete gains last time, and capital gave that to us, and it ruined our momentum, and it right. turned the working class into reformists. Right. right. This time we won't fall for that trick. Yes. This time it's revolution or nothing. Yes. So we the point is reforms. Right, yes. We refuse reform. Reform is material gains. If they yeah. give us housing, we'll just not live in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stay in our tents in yeah. Hyde Park. <laughs> and you're not a true communist if you care about public housing or wages or, or anything like that. What you need to care about is communism. Yes. Now, obviously, this doesn't work in pra practical terms, but the point is that that's not how revolution works. We went through that. There's yeah. a fundamental distinction, a qualitative distinction. It's like it's not a it's not a matter of convincing the working class to be revolutionary or convincing them to like stay reformist and uh, fight between the reformists and revolutionists in, in the left. That's not how it works. It yeah. depends on the capacity of capital to actually give the, to the working class these material gains. If yeah. The material gains are not inherently either reformist or revolutionary. What is the difference between reform and revolution is, is if the working class takes power or not. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to talk about uh, the other two. The other one. Yeah. The second one. Yeah. The welfare state as capitalist psyop, basically. Yeah. I mean, there are more sophisticated, not necessarily more so, <laughs> such like conspiracy theory uh, versions of it. I'll be like, well, yeah. an important one, obviously, is Mario Tronti, who is like the face that we put in, that we're sweeping in, 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 in the image. In last week's. In last week's, uh, in part one of this episode. Uh, we're sweeping Tronti, uh, who had a more like... Yeah, like the welfare state is a kind of a fully integrated capitalism, which evolution within the capitalist mode of production is kind of organic to its own dynamics. It's not like some like Evelian smart plan by some super smart capitalists. It's just something that actually emerges from the, the way capitalism works. Yeah, and it's actually In articulation work, working, with working class, class struggle. Struggle yeah. actually forces capitalism yeah. to become better yeah. at oppressing the working class. Yes. Let's not get we we don't want to get too complicated on Tronti because it's it's a rabbit hole that we're liable to fall into <laughs> right we went we had a we, we went to a tronti uh, thing in london he came here yeah uh it was really funny yeah he was abysmal he was unbelievably basically. bad he was basically just to simply put he's basically gaslighting the audience yeah that class struggle was over and that only old timers like him who remember 68 yeah carry the revolution carry, in their hearts yeah. uh, and there's no more material contradictions in capitalism yeah and everything is fine in material terms. Yeah. And the problem that the reason why the left can't do the revolution is because it's too focused on economic issues that no longer exist. Yeah. And this is this is the premise of a lot of the Tronti. I mean, Negri was writing the around the right. same time, the same stuff. Panzieri was writing around the same time, right. the same stuff. And Manfredo Tafuri was reading all this stuff yes. and it influenced his work yeah. in the late 60s. Yeah. It's the idea that once capitalism develops this kind of reformist capacity, this planning capacity, it's overcome crises. Yeah. So there's no longer any material yeah. rupture in capitalism. Yeah, like the whole Marxist framework that 
revolution comes from an, from structural contradictions within the capitalist mode of production at the, that exist at an economic level goes away. Yeah. The contradiction it, uh, is now shifted to being between the material base of capitalism that now is just just works. Yeah. And a kind of a subjective drive, purely subjective, independent of material issues, drive yeah. towards overcoming capitalism, which isn't clear why it exists, because if capitalism has overcome <laughs> the material problems, then capitalism is good, problem solved. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Capitalism improves material conditions of the working <laughs> yeah. class, everyone is more or less well off. Why yeah. the fuck do you want communism then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you, can, you can read this, obviously, in, in like Negri's later work with Hart, Exodus, right? Where it's or Empire, where... The idea of exodus in empire, I think, where it's like you just escape all all the little all the people will rebel from capitalism and just like walk off into the countryside yes. and like create an alternative society because they because they're fucking hippies. Like the yeah, the, yeah. the the notion of the revolution. I mean, this is obviously a as lifestyle revolt. Yes, yeah, this is obviously a a sort of petit bourgeois uh, takeover of 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 Marxism. <laughs> I guess and it's no longer Marxism, obviously. Yeah. Uh, which of which essentially abandons the whole base superstructure dialectic and turns it into a strict duality, like the the base and the superstructure, the ideological superstructure are completely separated now, or at least that's the job of revolutionaries is to completely se separate it yeah. and create a revolutionary ideology yeah. that can only be a revolutionary in as much as it has absolutely no connection to the material base, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's why middle-class intellectual academics are now the true vanguard of the revolution. Right, right. And the working class can be safely dis discarded. Yeah, the discounted. working class are conservative kind of basket of the plurals. You really see how like it evolves over these 50 years since yeah. the 70s till today Yeah, into these uh, kind of middle-class quote-unquote left contempt. Um, and... In architecture, this basically determines the contemporary culture, in my, in our view. At least in, I mean, th this is the problem we have: is that we focus too much on the issues with academic discourse in architecture because we are in academia. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, the real issues out there in the world are that there's a kind of a large-scale privatizing corporate takeover of the city. Yeah. Um, estates are being obliterated and destroyed to build gentrifying uh, private uh, estates. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the only bit of like vaguely progressive rhetoric that is being uh, taken over by these corporate interests are is uh, basically climate change. They they sell gentrifying neighborhoods that they built on top of the ruins of a public housing estate as being green somehow usually. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is very clear in the latest uh, Reba Sterling Prize, which we probably will talk about more extensively in the next episode. After the prize has already actually been uh, given, decided, yeah, which is going to be this Thursday, like literally two days after this episode comes out. Um, but that's it. Like the the whole like appropriation of uh, what appears as a left radical critique of capitalism by way of like critiquing the welfare state doesn't really appear so much in the corporate uh, milieu. Uh, in, in the justifications for actual material production in the in the neoliberal city. But in academia, yeah. like the, you, you, you just constantly see radical "quote unquote" left well, narratives that seem to just be justifying contemporary practice. Yeah, in, in in academia, the the kind of left or pseudo left radicalism, whatever it is, we're right. criticizing. 
functions as a rear guard, basically, for capital's act- activities in the in the urban sphere, like retroactively justifying smaller flats right. or fewer rooms or right. like more studios right. and bedsits, right? Because uh, to follow like Robin Evans' argument or an argument I think that even like Pier Vittorio Relli. Right. And Maria Giudici have made recently like different rooms was a kind of patriarchal right. uh, capitalist plan to like turn B- bourgeoisify the, yeah. the family relations yeah. among the working class. So the degrading living conditions in in like late neoliberal housing right. are actually a return to authenticity. Authentic, the authentic yeah. communal forms of life organic to the working class. Yeah. And that critique of housing goes way back to, yeah, to Robin Evans you get it in in Jane Jacobs, right? In a, in a certain you, kind. You, you clearly see the uh, Trontian uh, basis of this kind of the, this radical revolutionist uh, subjective uh, reading of of the welfare state. There, the um, like it, the capitalist state is forcing a normalization of bourgeois patriarchal forms of life onto the working class by forcing them to live in the welfare state public housing box apartments of modernism, right? That, like, you see the postmodern, in, arch- in architectural terms, and the postmodern in political theory slash philosophy terms, producing what effectively is just a kind of a, a left cover for Thatcherism and neoliberal policies and, and the effective degradation of material, the material conditions, which is... It, like prevalent today, like we we see all, all the time these kind of uh, takes on. I mean, I remember having a, a student, who was a great kid. Uh, like he was a London British black kid student, which is fairly rare in to get in uh, elite uh, academia. From a working class background, lives in a working class area in London, and uh, for his first essay, for me, he just wanted to do a kind of a research on estates under demolition and the danger of demolition in his uh, borough in mm-hmm. London. And he just did that kind of a coverage of like, identified a few of those, went and did photographic coverage, talked to some people, tried to understand what was going on as like a, the, the local struggles to prevent this demolition of the estates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was great. Like it was just kind of a basic empirical research on the social struggle around uh, public housing in London. Second essay in the second term, uh, he wants to make a critique of how public housing uh, has a normalized understanding of the family structure and what we need is more flexible apartment layouts to replace the rigid uh, like sep- exactly this like there's too many like the working class the problem of the housing problem of the working class is that their houses have too many rooms that's basically yeah. the reading it's it bizarre is, how many times we've heard variations on that yes argument. this <laughs> isn't unbel- like you go to to you you, you go to a, a group of organizing folk trying to fight to prevent the demolition of their estate as a left-wing radical feminist architect uh, and make this argument, the best thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to be left out of the room. Yeah. You're lucky if you don't get beaten up. <laughs> It'd be like this, the same thing as going to like a Save the NHS demo and starting like grabbing the micro, the, the megaphone and start reading like Foucault on biopolitics. And yes. Like denouncing like biopolitics the state is governmentality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly the same thing. Exactly. Well, going back to the 60s, um, 
we want to, we want to talk today a little bit. We're going to go through this, this, this perspective and all the different ways it shows up in architectural ideology. And one of the, the main ones that we focus on is hostility to planning, right? Architecture against planning. And that comes out in all kinds of stuff in Aldo Rossi's work, right? In, uh, Pierre Vittorio Relli's work later on, like recent work, yeah. um, in Jane Jacobs, in, in a whole host of things. Yeah. And if we go back to, uh, again, like this kind of Italian scene around Tafuri in, in the Venice region, another guy I mentioned briefly earlier, Raniero Penzieri, right. he, his argument, like the classic Marxist reading, right, is that capitalism is about markets. Like mm-hmm. just to put it in as simplistic right. terms as possible, capitalism is about the chaos of the market right. and socialism is about planning. Right, right. It's fairly simple dichotomy. Incredibly simple, right? Overly simplistic dichotomy, but yes. Yeah, Panzieri he uh, went against this argument, saying that basically within the factory, the factory is capitalist planning. Right. So you have chaos between factories, like right. in the market. Right. But within factory, yeah. within the factory, it's a space of total planning. Right. This is this is the Fordism, right? right. We mentioned right. before. And this is objectively true. Like if, if you don't need to think about a factory specifically, but you need to think about like within the scale of a capitalist agent. Yeah. A firm. The realm, a firm, uh, uh, the realm of domination of a single capitalist agent. Yeah. There's planning between capitalists. There's competition. There's no yeah. planning. Yeah. And this this argument about like how much planning there is in capitalism was made in a, in a recent book by uh, Leigh Phillips and Michael Rozworski called "The People's Republic of Walmart," right. which is pretty funny. Right, right, right. Talks about how shambolic attempts were to get rid of planning within firms, and how they did, <laughs> obviously the planning that Amazon and Walmart do yeah, is what yeah. works. They try to do internal competition within the firm between yeah. teams, and it basically destroy their. Yeah, I think it was <laughs> Sears that tried that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So this this is a critique of planning at the scale of the of the firm, but it has a deeper implication against planning, I think. And Tronti takes this idea a bit further, basically in in society and factory, when he says that basically the factory is the core of capitalist planning and domination, and it extends to the whole of society. Um, you get it in in uh, in. Um, Negri at this time talking about Keynes. Right. Keynesianism is basically planning for capitalists. Yes. Which is true to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a degree of planning that capital is taking on. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's learning from Marx. I think Negri says it's like capital capitalist red Marx, basically. Right. Um, and in Tronti's argument, this idea of planning is now extending and totalizing, dominating right. society in the city. Right. And you can see these ideas reflected in avant-garde architectural work in yeah. Italy, like from Arcazum, Super Studio, yeah. No Stop City is basically this yeah. vision yeah. of an entirely totalized yeah. capitalist planning of the city yeah. where it's just an endless big box store or endless shopping mall full of products, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, this, obviously this framework is wrong for a few reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it doesn't... It's not wrong in the sense that, yeah, there is definitely significant amounts of planning and even like public ownership of strategic sectors of the economy uh, under like different sorts of welfare state models mm-hmm. uh, that do stabilize capitalism. Uh, the, dif- the problem that uh, this uh, understanding of the welfare state has is that this, this is not like, again, it has an overly like conspiracy theory understanding of how we, this came about and doesn't understand this as being a kind of a, 
Like this is an outcome of a very specific set of conditions, which we yeah. which are the conditions that we already addressed. And essentially, it is an expression of a, a specific form of uh, a specific uh, point and the power relation in a struggle between two great sectors of the capitalist class itself. Right. The uh, capitalist class that is engaged in actual production, the productive working, uh, the productive productive capital, not in the sense that the capitalists produce, but in the sense that they exploit profit from productive activity. Yeah, like, like factory owners, yeah, factory whatever. Owners. Yeah. Um, productive capital and rentier financial capital. Right. Um, and be, this happens when, we, we covered this already, when the profit rate is high, productive uh, capital keeps finance capital under control because finance capital extracts rent from production. Yeah. And this is, we get a lot of And there's of a lot analysis. of profit in production. Yeah. So the power relation benefits the productive capital. And we get a lot of this analysis from Michael Hudson, yeah, uh, who talks a lot about conflict and contradiction between rentier and productive capital, right. and the extent to which rentier capital, in the form of finance, insurance, and real estate, right. basically dominate all Western yes. economies. Yes, and that's the source of the fundamental crises. Yeah, and that and cannot Hudson, change. Hudson takes this analysis all the way back to Smith and says this is something that Adam Smith, right, like early theorists, early economists, who were in a sense pro-capitalist or pro-market. Yeah, at, in, at their time, rentierism was feudal. Yeah, and was the enemy yeah. of, of capitalism. Yes. Yeah. So you can see in, in, in planning something working in the favor of productive capital. Yes, and, like, it, and absolutely. Like it, but the point is that it is an expression of a moment when productive capital controls the capitalist apparatus yeah. and controls the state because it has a very high... Yeah. Because, because it is very profitable. Yeah. Uh, as profit rate declines, that profit needs to be compensated through artificial mechanisms, and that, that's when you get financialization. Yeah. Uh, so the welfare state is an outcome of this because the productive capital benefits from having the state control strategic parts of uh, the economy to keep costs of production low for productive capital. Like yeah. the reason why you have like public railways for example, is to ex to remove the profit uh, profit seeking from this infrastructure, so that the factory owners that use trains mm -hmm. <laughs> have to pay less for their logistical operations, yeah. thereby increasing the profit of factory owners at the prejudice of rent extractors on uh, this infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. The, um, or the same thing in housing, like you don't exactly have to pay the, the worker housing. more. A higher wage, just so that the the landlord takes a huge cut of that wage. Exactly, you take like, away take the, 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 the rentier class. Yeah, exactly. cut out the parasite. Uh, so the in in essence, what you see is that the 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 factory owner. We're using factory. Please yeah. understand factory in a very broad term. The the factory owner, the protective capitalist, doesn't have to. There doesn't need to be a large transfer of uh, extracted wealth from the worker, from the productive capitalist. To the person who owns the house the worker lives in. Yeah. That there's an attempt to decrease that. Increasingly, the tendency is to go the other way as the profit rate in global terms uh, uh, diminishes, right? Yeah. So the welfare state really is, is not just, uh, we, we've said this already, but it's, it's good to emphasize the welfare state is not just when the working class forces uh, advances on capital. It's ex it expresses a specific moment in capitalist production when profit rates are high. Basically, the welfare state is when profit rates are high and the workers are organized. That's it. Yeah. 
I think that you mentioned this transition basically from a kind of productive capitalism to rentier capitalism. Right. And there's an interesting kind of architectural version of this transition, or you see this transition play out in a debate in Italy again, basically between Arcazum, Andrea Baranzi, Mm-hmm. And Aldo Rossi and Aldo Rossi's rationalists. Right. So in the like seventies, um, there was a, a industrial exhibition in Milan, and there was a basically a showdown between like the quote unquote radicals who are mostly from Florence and were in the Archigram Super Studio crew, and the rationalists around Rossi, with also uh, you know Giorgio Grassi and right. all, a bunch of people we don't know anymore. <laughs> and the the way this debate started is quite interesting because on the one hand, the radicals are the realists. Their argument is that the scale of the architectural object, like the monument, mm-hmm. is totally irrelevant in the capitalist city of today. Capital is rationalizing, it's planning, it's totalizing the city. Uh, so their vision in No Stop City is of this kind of endpoint of when capitalism right. fully takes over the city. Yeah. And there's no space in No Stop City for the architectural scale. Right. What you have is an infinite envelope, right. and within it you just have fully consumer products, yeah. and it's fully generic inside. Yeah. Against this... Uh, the consumer you know, product has a like a small thing on a shelf. Yeah, or a mo- like an air conditioning unit or right. a tent. There's some tents in there. I don't know if that counts as <laughs> architecture. I guess there's some people that did. Um a motorbike, yeah, like a couch, all this kind of stuff. Right. Consumer industrial products. Uh, and then against them, the the rationalists, so-called, have a fairly kind of uh, nostalgic, um, naive argument for the relevance of architecture, right. which is an anachronistic argument, basically, right. according to the, right. the radicals. Right. Um, like they want to bring back the pyramid, the the temple right. the the, the collective want, art artifact. yeah they want to find essentially there's, it's a, it's, a, it's a a search for meaning in the meaninglessness yeah. of the capitalist totality yeah and, and architecture can embody that somehow yeah and this was Alderossi's gambit was to try to make an argument for the relevance of the architectural scale right. in the face of hostile planning or like the dominance of planning by capital so he's making an anti-modernist argument basically mm. to go back to away from planning to architecture with a right. capital A, right? Yeah. And what happened is that, like, it was completely reversed. And the realists became, the the radicals became the naive ones, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And and Aldo Rossi turned out to be true. Yeah. Turned, they turned out to be right. By by way of be, being the actual expression of capitalist interests in the city. Exactly. And they their architecture was actually the architectural expression of finance capital yes. and real estate capital. Yes. Where the monument, the Bilbao, the museum, yes, uh, is the gen, is is the is the dyna- it, it it is the object that generates urban surplus value in rentier speculation. Yeah. So so the idea from the from the radicals' perspective is that productive capital would continue to dominate. They don't they don't make these arguments in these terms, and Rossi certainly didn't make sure. No, this but, kind that, of but that's Marxist what analysis. they were actually. But this saying. is the reality, yeah. right? And all and Bronzi and all the radicals basically dropped architecture and went into industrial design, right? And they just designed furniture, basically, right. and the and gambling that like there is no room architecture, for the architecture is doomed. It's doomed. So we're it's to the next thing, yeah. which is. And then Rossi and his crew, they design. double down on architecture and they're actually rewarded, especially, <laughs> especially the people who come after yeah. them, like, yeah. like Zaha, Gary, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously the, uh, like the, uh, the material objective reality of the, of the Rossian urban artifact, as he calls it, 
is just the Bilbao effect, super, uh, what's it called, the star architecture object. Yeah. That, that's what it is. Yeah. It's a generator of uh, speculative uh, profits in rentier uh, land speculation. Yeah. So, it, I mean, this is our critical take on uh, anti-planning, neo-avant-garde architecture a la Rossi. Right. Uh, or that era, um, who have a critique of the plan. Uh, but it's remarkable the extent to which, even though clearly from a Marxist perspective, this architecture is an expression of a switch towards rentier capital mm -hmm. in the capitalist economy mm -hmm. and an expression of the new real estate dominance of the economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's still it's still the fixation of the architectural left in academia. Yeah, this kind of protest. Yeah. Of the absolute architecture, of the oppositional architecture, which is critical in and of yes. itself, which confronts the capitalist metropolis, which confronts with the its suburbs, difference, yes. with its difference and its uh, objectualness, yeah, and its radical like um, so, volunteerism, yeah. you know, and the architect's expression in the object of a political right. statement, right? Uh, this is still like completely this is precisely hegemonic. the mechanism. Yeah, exactly what is still presented in Rossian terms yeah. as being an oppositional act of will yeah. against the totality of the capitalist city planning and economy yeah. is the very mechanism through which that economy now functions. Yeah, yeah. So in a sense, like you were saying, that the kind of radical, like left radical rhetoric in that we see in academia function as a real guard of capital yeah. in justifying retroactively what capitalism is now doing next. But yeah. it also functions as an ideological avant-garde of neoliberal capital. In the Certainly historically it did, yeah. It is, it is trying to produce the next version yeah. of the legitimizing rhetoric and the, 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 the like market competition in the kind of free marketplace of academic ideas is who is going to come up with the best, most effective way of masking what's happening as its opposite uh, and that that is going to eventually be universalized as the the next rhetoric that is going to be a, like you generalized mm -hmm. by real estate capital yeah essentially and this is a problem that obviously uh, some like many listeners who think more about politics in broader terms will probably resonate in a broader sense of like the insufficiency of a kind of a the, the liberal middle class quote unquote left in in the first world mostly in that sometimes it feels that the left or sections of the, the more liberal sections of the left oppose the right not because the right is the political articulation of the interests of capital but because the right is conservative mm -hmm. uh, as in it's stuck in a past model that no longer is the most efficient and the most effective one to serve the interests of capital instead of embracing the new ways of doing it that the, the, this liberal uh, avant-garde proposes. It, it is a remarkable thing that this, this kind of radical position rejects material gains that it says are perfectly compatible with capital, mm -hmm. capitalism and focuses on cultural gains, which are actually com perfectly yes. compatible with capitalism. Yes. This the the Trontian position, or the the this whole, we'll just call this Italo-Marxist position. Sorry to good Italian Marxists out there. <laughs> 
whoever you may be. If you're a good Italian Marxist, you will agree with you. You will agree with us with our derision of Italians. <laughs> if you don't, you're not good. <laughs> Some self, self critique. <laughs> uh, this this position is is was basically just like the idea that capital was planning that material gains uh, were not where the real struggle was. Mm. Basically, that the economy was just the terrain of capital. Yeah. Uh, and that the only, politi- yeah. the only political struggle is against and outside of the economy. Yeah. Like a political will against... As a kind of autonomous concept of the political, which yeah. we see again in architecture all the time. This was just the dominant definition of politics pre-2008. Yes. This is just the neoliberal consensus, basically, yes. yeah. which the left or at least a certain kind of the left did yeah. and still does, the particularly most, in architecture. The, mo- the most, uh, yeah, the most, um, the, the sections of middle, the middle class that are affected by the downward mobility, but are trying to compensate for that with being uh, kind of an ideological avant-garde. Yeah. S- selling ideas to capital as a form of a left activism and yeah. entrepreneurialism. That, that's essentially the material stakes here. Yeah. And that's the form, that's, we could say that that's basically... The, for, the 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 guise of reformism today, when reformism is not available in material terms, mm-hmm. it's only available in cultural terms. Right. And basically, this the radicals are the anti-reformist right. radicals right. are the ones making the reforms today. Basically, yeah. or proposing them. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice reversal. Yeah, <laughs> so history is great. <laughs> so, just as a, a final example. I read a version of this take, this like the welfare state as PSYOP. I I read a sophisticated and, you know, fairly correct version of Mm -hmm. that take um, in a book by a guy named Tal Commoner. Mm -hmm. The book's called The Efficacy of Architecture. It's quite interesting. He goes through kind of the era of reformist architecture. He talks about Fordism. Uh, He used the concept Fordism a lot in his other book. Um, but in this one, he, he, he basically, I mean, he does a critical history of how, uh, like the bourgeois reformist movement, like the philanthropic movement right. in the 19th century, how their ideas about housing kind of carried over into the 20th century and into social housing, council housing. So it's, it's a Robin Evans, uh, yeah, framework. this is the, this is the, more intellectually serious version of yeah, that, yeah. and commoners quite, because obviously that yeah. obviously that 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 that, exists, that ideological connection, dynamic. yeah, it, it, it's very much a continuity. Yes, yeah, and commoners he's quite critical of the neo avant garde. He wrote an entire book, uh, right. basically making an argument much like our own, right? right? Uh, but according to this argument, there has never really been a working class housing program. Um, from the 19th century, it was the bourgeoisie, basically, who were inventing the form of housing, the form of life, the layouts, the right. arrangement of, of the flat, basically, for the working class. Right. Uh, yeah. And then radical left, you know, socialist councils, communist councils in Britain took up the ideas and the plans already developed and ran with them, and the so even the Soviet Union basically copied or used the same basic plans, okay, right. according to this argument. Um, it's true, but what does what does this mean? Does this mean that the flat is inherently bourgeois, and that there's some non-bourgeois proletarian flat? 
that just hasn't been invented yet, or maybe it was invented by Ginsburg and in, in the social in the Narcom fin mm. and just never implemented. Uh, the argument is is basically that there's and this is much stronger in Evans, right? Where he go, he talks about rookeries like 19th century slums where workers live, you know, two families to a bed and everyone crammed in to like uh, you know uh, incredibly. Terrible, but that, that was degraded. also built by capitalists. That was also that was also a form of life that was invented for the working class by capitalism at yeah, the time. Exactly. And then that it just happened to change over time. How how yeah. what was the proletarian housing that capital produced? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that was a profitable form of housing for capital. Yes. That was a that was a rent rentier business. Yeah. There were landlords making huge amounts of money off this kind of housing. Right. For it wasn't just like workers building their own shanty towns right. outside of capitalism. Right. This was a this was a this was a business model right. for capitalists. Yeah. But the, the, this this argument assumes that there's like an essential working class lifestyle. Yes. form of life to use the kind outside of, a, of a, a gambin flavored version. Right. outside of an independent and independent from capital. It's like no, there is no working class outside of capitalist yeah. relations. Yeah. The working class is the working class because it exists in capitalist relations. Yeah. Before capitalist relations, it wasn't the working class. It was like serfdom, yeah. which also had like housing that was determined by the forms of exploitation of feudal society. And in urban context, it was a kind of a proto-working class in the limited bourgeois uh, relations that existed in, in, in medieval towns, yeah. and et cetera, and so on. The, the exploited classes are always defined economically and in the way they organize their life by the mode of production, mode of production in which they are exploited. And that doesn't mean they have no agency. They're no. struggling within that mode of production, yes. within that society, yeah. to get the best that they can. To best, get right? the best that they can. And the, the whole point of being a Marxist is that you understand that in ca with, with capitalism, the conditions are constructed that the form of exploitation can be overcome. Yeah. That the struggle for the work of the working class against its exploitation is not just a kind of a, no more just a kind of an inglorious attempt to uh, smooth over the worst conditions of exploitation that that given mode of production can can give you, but the the exploited class is organized in a total in, in a kind of a total system of production in such a way that it can effectively take over and replace the ruling class and thereby dissolve its uh, the relations of exploitation to core through a long process of historical struggle yeah. obviously yeah and that's when you'll get like and then the you get proletarian culture yeah. that you can't essentialize and predict and yeah. imagine and utopianly fix yeah. as an image um, architecturally yeah. or otherwise uh, especially not in reference to a kind of essential form of life of, of the workers that is independent of how the bourgeois organize the flat yeah like the worst thing about this is that basically what this argument is saying is that it's bourgeois housing for the working class when it's the bourgeois state doing it. Mm. All the other times, when it was the bourgeois market doing it, right, right. that was the genuine, authentic forms of life of the working class. Like, they only recognize capitalism. It, it's like you... you like the, this, this framework, kind of left critique of the welfare state, is just right-wing libertarianism. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. like the, uh, what's his name? 
Evans. Evans is just a right-wing libertarian. Yeah. That's what this is. It's just aggressively neoliberal. That it, it's the it's it's bad capitalism when it's the state. Yeah. And and this, guys, this is this is why you need to ditch Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> like this, <laughs> all of this postmodern bullshit. Yeah. All of the, this is where it leads. This is the stake, the political stakes of this bullshit post-Marxist theory. Yeah. Is this is to render the difference between the left critique and right-wing libertarianism null and void. Yeah. So in essence, to, and to conclude, I guess, heterotopic uh, resistance acts against the totality of the city in the, like, localized, uh, heterotopia of localized gestures rejecting the totality of capitalism in the capitalist city yeah. against the plan of capital are bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is good is to take over the regime and impose a new totality that is a revolutionary totality. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the fun reversal of... of of the, the, again, that tweet we were looking at, right? Which is like, I don't care about these reforms. I want to change the totality. Right. Like we're making that, that argument now right. in a different way. Right. But yeah, but yes. Although what we're opposing is not material reforms. What we're opposing is architects affirming their will in we're, the political object, which is, is a museum that raises land, land value. We're rejecting cultural reforms. basically. Yes. Yeah. But I, by the I, way, don't interpret when we're saying cultural reforms as stuff like like feminism or gay rights. That's not what we're talking about. No, we're talking about uh, kind of the culturalist drive of the cultural agent. Yeah, uh, changing like modes of life, creating a little like a commune, a hip, hippie commune in the yeah. city that rejects uh, like uh, I don't know, paying individual, rent or something. Individual and, kitchens. Yeah, and in something? the and in the end, it's just going to be a middle class gentrifying colony in in yeah. some started by some younger, lower income middle class, sons of the middle class, yeah. who, because of that situation, actually set up their little commune in a, a part of town with lower prices. And raise which the means, rent for Which means it's a working class and in doing so function as a vanguard of gentrification in the yeah. area. Yeah, we're rejecting like architects reforming the lifestyle of capitalism. Yes. Uh, exactly. So I guess our, our practical advice to give some sort of positive ending here is just fight for the material gains that you want. Right. Don't overthink it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the obvious point is the struggle is going on right now is for yeah. solving the material problems of the working class. Yeah. Fight for council housing. Yeah. Which includes fighting for the development of public programs that will give you a job, a public job, mm-hmm. as an architect designing council housing, which yeah. will also solve the employment problems in the discipline and the deregulation of uh, labor. Also unionize, fight as a worker. Yep. Don't try to do the revolution with revolutionary architecture. That's not the real thing. Mm-hmm. If you're fighting for all these things and you don't feel enough like a communist make sure you're in the communist party yeah like or whatever <laughs> if you want like join your whatever revolutionary or potentially revolutionary organization makes the most sense where you live yeah 
And that counts as being a revolutionary. (laughs) (laughs) And your job is to push for the organized struggle of the working class towards an improvement of their conditions to a point where capital will have to either give it to them if it can or won't give it to them if it can't and then you will have a revolutionary condition on your hands. And if the if in general subjectivity in the in the West, the um, material gains are perceived as being fighting for the welfare state, fine. That's the historical reference people have. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we solved that <laughs> one. Critical support for the welfare state <laughs> in context. Yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was honestly a really excellent question. It was a really hard episode to do. We basically recorded the whole thing twice, or even like the second part was even three times. <laughs> Is it was difficult to get the the right combination of architectural examples and political theory, right? And to make it as accessible as we could and not fall down like some theory hole on right the Italian <laughs> side of things, Italian bullshit, which is like by design a theory hole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but please go to uh, Patreon yes, and send us a send us another great question. Yes, um, become a patron. Uh, you can find that at, I'll try to be even more, if I can top my sleaziness. The top sleaziness you ever did was the Faf episode, and then you kind of pulled back, you know, part one. Okay, let me see. Please go to patreon.com slash streetsweeperpod. He's, he's doing a weird sleazy face as well. You yeah, see. you got to get the, the, if you don't the do jaw the, moving. Yeah. Lateral jaw waggle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, and we'll see you next time. Yep. Bye. Bye.